1: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
2: Richard, you and I have tackled a lot of big problems on this podcast, but I don't think any are bigger than climate change.
3: Agreed. I can't think of any other issue that involves greater opportunities, challenges, or peril if we don't do it right. Than finding solutions for climate change.
2: Well, that's why we call this show How Do We Fix It?
3: Moving to Net Zero America with Eric Larson and Jesse Jenkins.
1: We wanted to paint several different pictures that are quite different from each other to illustrate that there are many different ways to actually get to net zero. Our
3: show is about fixes.
0: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
3: Joe Biden will be president within weeks. And he's promised to launch a program that will practically eliminate US greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. That's just 30 years from now.
2: And since the main greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide, which is emitted whenever we burn fossil fuels, That means massive changes in how we power our economy and even in our personal lifestyles.
3: This week, a groundbreaking new study has been published by researchers at Princeton University. It's called Net Zero America. It looks in great detail at different
2: pathways
3: that we can take to reach the goal of ending greenhouse gas emissions.
2: Climate hasn't been a big priority for the U.S. government over the past four years, to put it mildly. But that's about to change, so the timing on this report couldn't be better.
3: Our guests are two of the principal investigators on the report. Jesse Jenkins is an engineering professor at Princeton who works in the school's Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment.
2: And Eric Larson is a senior research engineer in the Andlinger Center, and the author of dozens of papers on ways to produce cleaner energy. They both join us from my hometown, actually, Princeton, New Jersey. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Your study, Jesse, it involves five different pathways to getting the country to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. Let's start by explaining just what net zero really means.
4: Yeah, net zero means that we produce no more CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions each year than we remove from the atmosphere due to human activities. And until the world gets to net zero greenhouse gases, um, we're going to continue to see accelerating climate change and potential risks and damages. So it's a critical goal, and we're trying to point a way for the United States to lead to that target.
3: Before we get to the different proposals or possible pathways to uh, net zero, why is this goal so important? Eric?
1: It's important because without net zero, we're going to continue building up greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And as long as we do that, we're going to continue to warm the earth above what it naturally would be. And so we need to get to net zero so that we can basically stop the warming. Eventually,
4: you know, climate change is a challenge driven by the total accumulation of greenhouse gases, not the rate at which we produce them. And so it's a little bit like when you're trying to fill up a bathtub. Um, if you keep adding water to the tub, the level's going to keep getting higher and higher. And so what we need to be doing is reaching the point where we are not putting any more water into the tub than the drain is taking out of the bottom. And that's net zero. And ideally, if we want to then bring down you know atmospheric concentrations later, we would want to go to net negative, meaning we are we're actually pulling more out of the bottom of the drain than we're contributing from the faucet.
3: Yeah, that's a really important distinction because even if we reach net zero, which is a hugely ambitious goal, we still have in the Earth's atmosphere the same amount of carbon as we have now, or or perhaps more.
1: That's right. And uh, the the lifetime of Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is quite long. And so that's the reason, um, even if we stop today completely, we're still going to get some warming that goes on as a result of of the CO2 staying in the atmosphere.
4: And and that's why the transition to net zero is so urgent. Um, We need to make as rapid progress towards that goal as possible to limit future damages and impacts from climate
2: change. So in order to help policymakers and really all of us understand how this can be feasible. It just seems like such a massive task. You looked at five different pathways, different mixes of renewable energy, other energy sources. How did you select the different pathways
1: to study? We wanted to paint several different pictures that are quite different from each other to illustrate that there are many different ways to actually get to net zero. So our five different cases have quite different features and and we can draw insight from that.
2: So one of the the variables you looked at is what you call max electrification, turning a lot of things that we now do with liquid fuels, in a lot of cases, or natural gas, such as home heating and transportation, to running on electricity. How how does that all work? Well, um, you might have seen more and more electric vehicles on the
4: roads lately. So uh, electric vehicles are getting more affordable as the cost of batteries declines. Um, and their range improves, which makes them more practical choices for a lot of people. Uh, and so what we see in the, the high electrification scenario is a just like gradual transition or rapid transition in some cases, to electric vehicles in both personal vehicles and, and light duty you know cars and trucks. And also over time in uh, medium duty and heavy duty trucks used for freight and delivery, um, which would be a mix of both battery electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles, both of which use electric motors to, to move without any greenhouse gas, direct greenhouse gas emissions. And for heating our homes, we can rely on efficient electric heat pumps. Our air conditioners are all heat pumps uh, used for cooling, and they basically move heat around uh, as opposed to creating heat or or cooling, and that, that makes them very efficient. Uh, so we start to use heating heat pumps for both cooling and heating, and that allows us to tap into clean electricity from renewable sources and other low-carbon sources to uh, comfortably heat our homes.
3: Let's just take one of the recommendations that you make, which is get roughly 50 million electric personal cars and trucks on the road and install 3 million or more public charging ports nationwide that is ambitious and, and difficult, isn't it, as a goal? How, how would you go about doing it?
1: I think the $50 million goal is by 2030, so we have a decade, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we need to go well beyond that to, to 2050. Um, there are a number of states that have set targets for electric vehicles and provide incentives to do that. Currently, an electric vehicle is, for a comparable vehicle, is going to be a little bit more expensive than a gasoline car on a first-cost basis. On a lifetime cost basis, it's probably competitive. But over time, as Jesse mentioned, the battery costs have been coming down and the expectation is that the costs will be coming down as well um, to cost parity on a first cost basis pretty soon. And that will help then drive the market. But initially, there'll need to be incentives provided to to stimulate that kind of movement.
2: As we work to use electricity for all of these functions that are now being run by fossil fuels, it means we need a lot more electricity, right? I mean, we can't just replace today's fossil fuel based electric power with renewable energy. We have to go farther, don't we?
4: Yeah, we have really twin challenges in the electricity sector. Electricity itself provi- uh, produces about a th- uh, 30% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And so in order to get to net zero, we have to obviously tackle that direct source of emissions. But as you indicated, we also need to expand the supply of electricity overall to help uh, electrify vehicles and buildings and industry and offset fossil fuel use there. So it's a double challenge. We have to be rapidly deploying new clean electricity sources, basically doubling our total supply of carbon free electricity. Uh, by 2030, and by 2050, producing two times more uh, new carbon-free electricity than our overall electricity generation today. So maybe to put that differently, we have to basically build the entirety of our U.S. power generation over the next 15 years, and then do it again over the 15 years after that to
0: 2050.
2: One of the big issues that that we all hear so much about is the need to go to renewables, but a couple of years ago, you did a report that I've quoted a couple of times in in various articles that showed that while wind and solar are really crucial to reducing carbon emissions from the power sector, they actually work best when they're accompanied by what your report called firm, low-carbon sources. Can you explain what those sources are and, and why they matter so much?
4: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Wind and solar are really... Um, you know, are really the cornerstones of our electricity supply in all of these scenarios. And that's because over the last decade, wind and solar have plummeted in price. Solar is about one-tenth the cost as it was 10 years ago, and wind has fallen by about 70%. And we expect those costs to continue to decline going forward. And so when we can use wind and solar, it's remarkably affordable and carbon-free electricity. And so we want to do as much of that as we can. The challenge is that wind and solar, of course, are weather dependent. So they vary as the sun shines and as the wind blows. And we can complement that variability in shorter time periods with electric batteries, you know, lithium ion and other batteries and energy storage technologies, and by flexibly choosing when to charge electric vehicles or heat up water or other sorts of automation of demand. Those are short term fixes. So what we need to complement those two options are firm generation sources, which can generate energy on demand, uh, whenever you need them, for as long as you need them. And that makes them really important complements to those weather-dependent resources like wind and solar, or to the shorter duration, you know, flexibility options like
2: batteries and shifting around when we use uh, electricity. So for the layperson, what are they?
4: Yeah, so today we use natural gas and coal-fired power plants as well as nuclear power as our main sources of firm generation. Going forward, it would make sense to preserve as much of the existing nuclear power fleet as we can continue to safely operate across the country. Um, And then we need to uh, transition over time from reliance on natural gas for firm power to low carbon sources, and that could be shifting gas-fired power plants to run on hydrogen, And also expanding the use of carbon capture to take CO2 emissions from gas-fired power plants and avoid uh, releasing them to the atmosphere, and instead store them safely underground. Or it could mean an expansion of new nuclear power or enhanced geothermal energy technologies or other low-carbon sources like that.
3: Getting to this very ambitious goal of of net zero by 2050, 30 years from now, how big a role will innovation play? Because it's clear to me that some of what you're talking about has yet to be invented, right?
1: Well, that's not quite right, actually. Most of what we include in our scenarios is technology that has been demonstrated, if not at commercial levels, at least at pilot level. So it's not breakthroughs that are needed, it's more the scale up and widespread deployment of technologies that we already understand, at least in the 2020s. So building a lot of solar and wind in the 2020s is something we know how to do. But we can also use the decade of the 20s to upscale and develop those technologies that aren't mature yet, but we know which ones they are, and so that they're ready to deploy at scale in the 2030s and 2040s.
3: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And
2: I'm Jim Meggs.
3: And we're speaking with two principal investigators on the new report, Net Zero America. More coming up.
2: Millions of people have lost weight with
4: personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
2: five different pathways different mixes of how we can use some of the available technologies one is heavy on renewables primarily renewable approach the other keeps more nuclear power and other options in the mix can you explain how you picked those and what they what we learned from those two different pathways
1: sure those those are sort of the bookends of our five scenarios uh, at sort of two different extremes if you will in the, in the one uh, which we call RE plus, which means lots of renewable energy, we reach uh, the point in 2050 where we have no more fossil fuel use at all. And in the other one, we call RE minus, renewable energy diminished, we don't allow the solar and wind generation to grow at faster than we've been able to build it in the past. Um, and so that automatically sort of limits how much we get by 2050. And In turn, that requires more fossil energy to be used. And if you're going to use fossil energy, there needs to be a way to capture the carbon from it and not put it into the atmosphere.
3: What are the implications in terms of costs?
1: Yeah, so interestingly,
3: we
4: find that these scenarios don't have substantially different costs, that basically all of them are spend less or equal as a share of GDP as we currently spend on energy today. So none of these require... A world war ii style commitment of 20 percent of our gdp to the energy transition they're all about spending a similar share of gdp as we do today but reprioritizing where we invest and spend our money to build a clean economy so that's the first high level important finding uh, the scenarios that are more expensive are those that have basically require more synthetic fuels to be produced so zero carbon hydrocarbons, but uh, basically taking CO2 from the atmosphere or from biomass and, and hydrogen from clean sources, and then using more energy to produce hydrocarbon fuels that are carbon neutral.
3: Could you explain what biomass is? Um, I think a lot of people are, are a little bit perplexed by that term.
1: Yeah, Eric? Yeah, biomass in our scenarios means plant matter that is not food-derived. So sources of biomass in our scenarios include crop residues, for example, corn stover includes residues from forestry activities. It includes some purpose-grown crops for grasses for energy. So it's it's basically any non-food plant material that can be sustainably produced.
4: And it's biomass and bioenergy products end up being a critical component of all of our scenarios uh, because it's one way to get carbon for hydrocarbon fuels uh, that is uh coming from the atmosphere originally right so plants absorb co2 as they grow from the atmosphere and then we can use that carbon either to produce hydrocarbon fuels that are you know carbon neutral when we burn the co2 it just goes back to the atmosphere or we can actually produce hydrogen which itself carries no carbon with it use that as a fuel and then capture the CO2 from that conversion and sequester it underground, safely store it in geologic basins. And that produces a negative emissions life cycle for that process, where the CO2 comes out of the atmosphere from plant growth, and then we take that CO2 and we sequester it underground. And that negative emissions allows us to continue to use some direct fossil fuel use with emissions in mobile sources, you know, vehicles, diesel for transport, jet fuel for for aviation. And to ensure that we reach that net zero goal because we're offsetting the
2: direct emissions from, say, jet fuel with negative emissions from the bioenergy process. That's a pretty neat trick that you can come up with a form of energy production that still lets us have trucks and airplanes and yet results in a net reduction in CO2 in the atmosphere. How big a role do you think that can play?
1: That has to play a big role to get to net zero in most of our pathways. In particular, the case that we talked about, renewable constraint case, RE-, that one needs a lot of CO2 capture from biomass to get the negative emissions to offset the greater fossil fuel use. So it's really critical in in almost all of the scenarios.
4: Yeah, the trade-off or the alternative, which we see in the 100% renewable scenario, is the need to basically double again, overall electricity production. So we, we need in that scenario to grow overall electricity supplies by four times current levels. So we have to use electricity to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, use electricity to produce clean hydrogen, and then use more electricity to stick the two together and make hydrocarbon fuel. And and so all that's very energy intensive. And, and that's the main alternative to this negative emissions, bioenergy process, which allows us to keep using some fossil fuels in the most costly and hard to decarbonize sectors. Those are basically our two choices.
3: Speaking of of negative emissions, uh, you talk about carbon capture and storage. Uh, what are they? I mean, how, how do they work?
1: Yeah, so I think most people would think about smokestack from a power plant with CO2 coming out and you have a tailpipe technology that you attach to it. And it's a chemical process that selectively absorbs the CO2 out of the flue gas stream. And then you concentrate that into a pressurized form that you can then inject into underground formations that are porous in a sense, and so can take the CO2, but also have a secure, what's called a cap rock that keeps the CO2 from coming back up to the surface. So it's really putting fossil fuels fossil carbon back to where it came from originally. So that's that's the storage part of it. The other capture technology that's important in some of the scenarios is called direct air capture. And this is where you basically set up a big set of fans that are blowing air across some kind of a either solid or liquid adsorbent that pulls the CO2 out of it. Uh, and then again, you concentrate that CO2 and inject it underground. The challenge with that technology is that Even though we're worried about 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, that's a pretty small concentration when you're thinking about a chemical process to extract the CO2 from that. Whereas a flue gas on a power plant has a much higher concentration, so it's actually cheaper to extract it at that point. Um, But you don't get negative emissions unless you're taking it directly out of the air
4: yeah and our the scenarios that use a lot of direct air capture the scenarios that basically max out the use of biomass so if we can you know plants are direct air capture (laughs) and if we can use plants and plant material first uh, that's going to be a cheaper and uh, more affordable option than trying to absorb co2 through these
2: chemical processes all of your pathways involve a heck of a lot of electricity as you've already explained and the electricity has to be moved around more. The sun is shining in Indiana, but not in New York State. Maybe we're going to be moving electricity farther than we typically do. But what do we need to do to upgrade our transmission capabilities?
4: Yeah, we really might be looking at a new era of substantial you know, national infrastructure construction here on a number of fronts. And one of those key ones is transmission expansion. Um, we built out most of our current power grid in the post war era, you know, through maybe the 1980s. And, and we've sort of been using that same grid for the last few decades with some, you know, replacements and augmentations. Going forward, if we want to rely primarily on cheap, clean American wind and solar power, we have to extend our grid to reach the places where the wind is, you know, most uh, cost effective and where solar power is most cost effective. It's primarily driven by wind expansion because wind is more location specific. We have more flexibility in where we put solar power so we can put it closer to where we consume. But to tap into the best wind resources, say in the Great Plains states, we need to expand our transmission grid to move that energy from where it's produced to our cities and factories and other places where we consume it. So that's a big lift, just like the need to substantially expand the amount of electricity we generate, we also need to substantially expand our ability to move that electricity around the country.
3: You say that transitioning to an energy system without greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 is possible and affordable and would save tens of thousands of lives. Talk about the health benefits.
1: Yeah, the the health benefits are pretty substantial. Um, The the first thing that happens in all of our scenarios is that coal-fired electric power goes away within the decade. And that's a source of something like 40,000 premature deaths avoided by by that alone. And then you have in transportation, as you switch to electricity, you're reducing the pollution that, that is closest to people on the street that has positive benefits for health outcomes. So it's it's pretty clear that we're gonna have a much cleaner economy if we are able to go down this pathway.
2: Joe Biden likes to say, When I hear the words climate change, the word I think of is jobs. Your report looked at the implications of these technological shifts in terms of jobs. What what did you find? What we find
4: is that uh, transitioning to a cleaner energy pathway actually leads to an increase in overall employment in energy supply related activities. We do see a decline in employment over time in fossil fuel sectors. And that decline is offset, more than offset, by a substantial increase in employment, primarily in wind power, solar power, and transmission uh, and and distribution grid related jobs.
2: Okay, let's imagine that it's now 2050 and our society has wisely followed some version of, of the pathways that you lay out here. We've gotten to net zero. Jesse, I know you have a, a young child. How will all of this have affected his lifestyle?
4: Yeah, that's something I think about a lot. My son will be the same age as I was when he was born in 2050. So maybe he'll be having his first child uh, around that time as well. and it's interesting because energy and how we make and use energy in many ways is invisible to most of us in our daily lives. And in some ways, I think that will be the case as well. You know, he probably won't notice a lot of these changes at a conscious level. But what he will probably notice is that, you know, the night sky is clearer and the air he breathes is, in, is much clearer wherever he lives because the vehicles that contribute so much of the urban air pollution that we all are exposed to and that produces smog and and obscures the sky all over the country will have been almost entirely eliminated. So he'll have cleaner air, um, you it'll be a quieter experience in a lot of cases where you're driving your car around will be quieter, uh, both inside and outside the vehicle. And our homes will be more comfortable and easier to heat and cool because they'll be more insulated and efficient and they'll use electric heat pumps that are probably automated and controlled by a, you know, smart device that we don't have to think about much. We just tell it, this is what I want for my preferences. And it goes about figuring out the cheapest way to meet my needs and to take advantage of the cheapest, cleanest electricity
3: available. That's a great answer. <laughs> I, I, I like that.
1: I would I would imagine that the, the landscapes that, you know, Jesse's son is going to be looking at will be the, the beauty of the landscapes will be appreciated in a different way, because nature is going to be providing a lot more of our energy than it is is today.
2: Thank you, Jesse Jenkins and Eric Larson. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs.
3: And I'm Richard Davies. Okay, Jim, before we get to our conversation, a recommendation, and it's something pretty fitting for this week from you.
2: This... Is the fantastic documentary that is called Fantastic Fungi? It is a really trippy look at the world of fungi, how they operate underground, work in so many different areas of so many ecosystems, typically out of sight in ways that we don't really notice, and yet they're so vital for the health of the planet. And this documentary does not shy away from getting into some of the kind of woo-woo, you know, spacey elements of mushrooms, including their psychedelic qualities. It focuses on a researcher named Paul Stamets, who's done brilliant work on the role of fungi in ecosystems, but he's also a big advocate for, you know, going on peyote trips and and psilocybin mushrooms and things like that. And the the photography and a lot of really amazing digital animation is extraordinary. It's a visual feast. I really recommend it.
3: All too often, when it comes to talking about climate change, the discussion turns to averting disaster. Rather than looking at some of the opportunities and excitement around this challenge that faces us, I I like their description of how the air will be cleaner so you'll be able to see the night sky with greater clarity and the tens of thousands of lives that will be saved because there's less pollution.
2: That's right. You know, when people talk about reducing carbon dioxide, they often forget that when you eliminate the burning of fossil fuels, you're also eliminating a lot of other nasty stuff that gets in the atmosphere. Look at diesel trucks, for example. We we often worry about the disproportionate impact of pollution on poor communities. Well, if we could get diesel trucks off the highways, which tend to run through poor neighborhoods a lot, you certainly see that in New York, that would mean so much for the health in those communities with high rates of asthma. But fighting climate change, recognizing that we can't just tinker around the edges with this problem is really crucial.
3: And both Jesse Jenkins and Eric Larson, Jim, made the point very clearly that many jobs will be created as we get serious about climate change and transition to net zero emissions, new jobs in renewable energy and expanding the electric power grid.
2: Those are great opportunities, but if on a federal level we try to base policy on which pathway generates the most jobs, that could mean we're actually focusing on the least efficient, the most expensive, the slowest path to reducing carbon emissions. We should be looking for the for the whatever brings down the most amount of CO2 for the least amount of money. Uh, so that we can get there sooner. That should really be our focus. The jobs are a wonderful side benefit, not the main purpose.
3: One area where I don't quite agree with them on is I do think that a lot of what they're talking about, getting to net zero by 2050, is going to require there to be many innovations and inventions in the next 30 years that haven't been made
2: yet. Well, that would be great. We may not get there... I also think it's important to recognize the benefit of public-private partnerships, and an amazing example of a public-private partnership that we're all going to benefit from shortly is this Operation Warp Speed to develop vaccines. The government didn't say we're going to manufacture vaccines, but they gave seed money, lots of it, to uh, to the to various uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and they promised them upfront, we're going to buy your vaccines. They got this whole vaccine thing running much more quickly than those companies could have done it on their own. So I do think there's a role for government investment. But at its best, it, it finds a way to incentivize private companies doing what private companies do best, which is innovate, and move quickly and, and use the power of the market. So hopefully we'll see a lot of that here.
3: Something you mentioned is is in My Perfect World. We should do a future episode, Jim, on Jim Meggs' Perfect World.
2: I love that. That sounds like the kind of podcast that would exist in My Perfect World. <laughs>
3: it's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard And Navy. I'm Jim Meggs. <laughs> and our producer is Miranda DeShafer. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, if you want to make a podcast or improve the one you have, then check us out at DaviesContent.com. Dot com and thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy
4: Group.
0: Hold up.